for our first talk of 2023, and we're delighted to be back. We had five talks last year, I think, so we're hoping to have a, a fuller schedule this year. And first up is our own Arlene, who is the chair of the History Society. Arlene has been giving adult education classes in Limerick, and as a result, she's opened a whole new kind of scene of history. <laughs> yeah, Limerick-based. So Limerick subjects, but the, which are also quite closely tied to the as we know. We're, we're practically neighbours and, uh, and uh, a suburb of Limerick in some senses. So Arlene tonight is going to talk to us about the O'Mara's and O'Mara's Bacon Factory and their story, which stretches, it's a rich family history, which stretches from Tumibara to Vienna. So, thank you. Thanks, Deborah. So, I bought this book for myself. Um, if none of you have seen it, it's well worth getting. It's a number of little short stories, um, but strange stories of mysteries, crimes, and eccentrics from the, the A to Z of Curious County Limerick. So, for every letter of the alphabet, there's a curious history, and it's really good fun. Sharon Slater, she's um, a Limerick historian. And I found a story in that that kind of interested me. So I started doing a little bit of research and then came across a whole family of, of interesting people. So, I mean, there's absolute, we could, we could do a talk every week for the next month on um, the O'Maras and their family because it's just unbelievable. But what I've done is kind of cherry picked a few of the ones that I found interesting. Um, the end one being the one that I discovered firstly in this book. So. Um, that was the, my favourite, I think, of all of them. Okay, so this is James O'Mara. He was born in Tumivara in 1817, and sometime around 1837, 1838, he moved to Limerick. Can everyone hear me okay? Actually, yeah, yeah. He's <clears throat> his brother was living on Mungert Street in Limerick City, and it's thought that he maybe moved to Limerick and moved in with him at first. Um, so he worked for a number of years in, he had worked in a woolen mills in Clonmel, and when he moved to Limerick, he got a job as a clerk in Matterson's um, bacon factory. So he then went on to set up his own, well, quite quickly, a year later, set up his own factory in, he started curing bacon in the basement of his own house on Mungert Street in 1839, and that's how he started out. He, um, dropped the E from his name, apparently. Uh, he thought it was better for commercial purposes that M-E-A-R-A -A was too long, so they became M-A-R-A -A from that time on, from 1839 onwards. Um, he initially sold Matterson's, so even though he left and set up, he was selling their product. And as I said, he started curing his own bacon then in his, his house in Mungard Street. Okay, you can move on. So. He was busy in all angles because in 1841 he married Hanora Foley or Fowley um, in Limerick and they had 13 children. So Hanora apparently worked alongside him in the factory. So the children were Bridget, Stephen, Peter, Margaret, Marianne, John, Kate, and obviously this John had passed away and they named the next boy born John, uh, James or Jim, Hanora Frank, Joe and Mary Ann or Nan. So they were the, the lot. And pictured here is 1868, and it's the youngest of the four boys um, and Nan pictured in that photo. Okay. So James and the family, um, they're listed as living on Mungert Street in the Griffiths valuation of 1850. 
and you can see the very top there. He's listed as a provision dealer on Mungert Street. Um, and they were living right beside Hanora's sister and her husband, um, Mary Foley and Andrew Lynch. So in 1856, in the Slater's directory of Munster, he's actually still living in Mungert Street. So obviously the money hadn't started flowing at that stage. He was still in a very modest house at that point. Okay. So as the business grew then, he acquired uh, premises specifically for the curing of bacon. And this was on Rocha Street. And in the Cork and Munster directory of 1867, it's listed as Rocha Street and along Rocha's Row, which is here. So somewhere roughly around where the red mark is there was where the factory was. There's talk, um, I've seen kind of listings that it was number 30, but there's no confirmation of that, whether it was, but it's roughly around that area and we'll see what's there now so we can make the, um, the comparison. So by the time they opened the factory then in Rocha Street, they were actually living in a house on Hearthstone Street and it had stables, it had its own enclosed courtyard and it had its own private chapel and billiards room. Um, so the money had slowly started to flow at this stage and, and the family had moved there. It's the building that's now occupied by St. Vincent de Paul in Limerick on Hearthstone Street. Okay. So James then was, um, as well as, as running the factory, and he was a devoted nationalist and hugely involved in local politics. So there's a list of stuff here he was involved in. He was an early supporter of Isaac Butt's Home Rule Movement, and he was a member of the Butt Committee, which successfully promoted Butt's election for Limerick City in the by-election of September 1871. He was also a Limerick Poor Law Guardian, and he's described as that when he was appointed High Sheriff of Limerick in 1887. He was a town councillor for Limerick Corporation for the Dock Ward from 1888 to 1898. He was also a member of the Limerick Harbour Commissioners, a governor of the Fever Hospital, and a trustee of the Limerick Savings Bank. I don't know where he got the time for all this, but anyway. He was Justice of the Peace, which has also been described as a magistrate of Limerick, and he was a visiting justice of the male and female prisons on Mungert Street. And as of 1893, and he remained in that post until his death in 1899. Yes? What's, what's that word mean at the shrivality of Limerick City? Is that to do with the sheriff? The sheriff? Does anyone know what that? I never noticed that word. Shrivality. Is it like the, 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 high, the high end people? Yeah? Yeah, I see nodding. Yeah. The who's who of Limerick, I suppose. <laughs> No, the, the, na the word here, the shrivality, right. shrivality, yeah, the who's who, the hierarchy, the who's who of Limerick, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, where are we now? So in 1860 then, um, his, his son Stephen joined the business at the young age of 15, and his brother, the brother as well, Jack, John or Jack, he became known as Jack, joined the business a short time later, and they helped to grow it extensively throughout the 19th century. So Stephen O'Mara was also a busy man. He married Ellen Piggott in Limerick in 1867 and they had 12 children. You can see the list of them there, uh, but sadly their eldest three children died of diphtheria in 1872. And you can see they did the same thing here. James, born 1871, died 1872, and the next child born 1873 was named James. So some of the ones we'll be focusing on, Stephen Jr. Um, and James, 
and Alphonsus or Fons was also a Limerick City Mayor at one stage as well. So when the couple got married first, they were actually living on Chapel Street beside St. Michael's Roman Catholic Church on Denmark Street now. They were living along there when their first child was born in 1868. You could just about see that. So Mary, 1868, Stephen O'Mara, Chapel Street, um, Ellen O'Mara, formerly Piggott. But by the time their next ch children were born, they, were, they had actually moved to Rocha Street. Um, and that's, you can see this 1871, 1873, sorry, that was their, their next son, James. Um, they were living on Rocha Street by that stage. So they had, eventually they all ended up living, most of the family end, ended up living on Rocha Street um, near the factory. So like his father, Stephen was a strong supporter of Isaac Butts' home rule movement, and he was a member of the committee which supported Butts' election in Limerick. He later developed um, a close association with Charles Stuart Parnell, and he was elected member of parliament for Upper Ossery in Kilkenny South for the Irish Parliamentary Party in 1886. He was also a prominent figure in local politics. So he was a town councillor on Limerick Corporation in the 1880s, and he was elected mayor of Limerick in 1895, or 1885, sorry. He was the first mayor of Limerick to be elected on a nationalist ticket. And he also served as high sheriff of Limerick City in 1888, 1913, and again in 1914. So politics really kind of ran in their blood. So Stephen and his wife and family moved to Strand House near Sarsfield Bridge in 1909. Now this house had been built sometime between 1760 and 1770, and it was previously known as Stonetown House. So in the 1911 census, the O'Maras obviously are, are living here. Um, they had two servants living with them, and the house had 16 rooms, 14 windows in the front, um, six outhouses, and consisting of a stable, two coach houses, a harness room, a cow house, and a fowl house. So pretty substantial building that they went into. And this is... Um, a map of the area that it was. It's where the Strand Hotel is now, which was formerly Jury's Hotel, which was formerly, Tony might be able to tell me, the inter, Intercontinental. Yeah, yeah. So this was the area that the house took up. So again, as I say, money was starting to, starting to flow. So the duties of an MP involved Stephen making regular journeys to London to attend the House of Commons. And he started kind of using these trips to source um, outlets for selling bacon, O'Mara's bacon. His first trip to the USA in 1887, he made his first trip to the USA in 1887 and he made another 15 trips um, after that. So this was his, his granddaughter, his great, Stephen's granddaughter, sorry, Patricia Lavelle, wrote a book on the O'Mara family. And I just took this snippet from it because it actually, it was, it was really nice and, and linked to Killaloo. Um, so she said, at home he was able to make use of the new railway for his journeys to Dublin, although he preferred to go by boat. And one tri trip is described here. The boat went through the heart of Ireland and the country with its hills and green fields, was spread before him in all its changing beauty for the best part of a couple of days. The steamer left Limerick and made its way up the Shannon, avoiding the rapids by various canals and locks. After Killaloo, it reached the wide waters of Loch Derg. The passengers had the run of the boat and could get a snack meal if they wished. Once when grandfather was traveling this way, terrible squalls sprung up and the lake was very rough, but usually they could stop for a moment at Holy Island and see the ancient ruins there. 
and pass on by the wooded heights of the Tipperary shore past Drummondir to Portumna, crossing and recrossing the lake until they found anchorage in Shannon Harbour as far north as Offaly. There was a big hotel there owned by the Grand Canal Company where they all stayed for the night and got to know one another and feasted on chicken and bacon and cabbage followed by apple pie. And then, then sat around huge turf, turf fires swapping stories or playing cards. Next morning the canal boat awaited them, gay with its overhead canopy to protect passengers from the heat of the sun or the inclement weather. The passengers sat in two long rows back to back and gazed out across the fields as the paddle lazily churned up the turbid waters and the boat made leisurely progress along the canal. The monotony was broken once in a while by the excitement of passing through a lock. So that is the Grand Hotel in Shannon Harbour that they actually stayed in um, when they made those frequent trips. So I, yeah, I don't know why he would choose to go that way every time rather than the train, but he preferred to do that apparently than, um, than go by train anyway. Okay. So by 1893, um, Omaras had established a lucrative um, export trade. So they had a huge volume of business within the English market and it actually called for a permanent agent to move to England to look after this business. So they had set up an office in London and this was run by James or Jim. Um, and we'll, we'll come to him again at the end. So when James Sr. retired from the business, his son Jack um, became manager of the, the bacon factory. And this is him pictured here. Um, with his, his wife, May Costello. Okay. So in the late 80s, Jack was invited to Russia by Tsar Alexander III to provide instruction on baking curing. How that came about, I'm not sure. Um, he stayed in St. Petersburg to supervise the construction of a baking factory. And in 1891, his father bought the rights of the Russian baking company and the family imported bacon from Russia into London until 1903. And you can see here, this is in the Munster News and Limerick and Clare Advocate. So May 9th, 1891, uh, where is the bit about we have uh, relating to the, the price to be paid to the vendor is 100,000 pound in 1891. Uh, 25,000 in fully paid shares and the balance 75 is to be paid in cash or in shares. So they obviously saw potential for making money when they, when they paid that much in, in 1891. So Jack apparently um, had, been, had gone to, to Russia and was living out there quite happily. And he came home, I suppose on holiday or for business, apparently, and went to Kilkee. They all holidayed in Kilkee. Went to Kilkee and met that lady that we saw him with, um, married her and never went back to Russia ended up staying in, in Limerick. Um, so, was there something else I had to say? Yeah, so the um, O'Mara's Bacon, Ham and Lard was awarded a special commemorative diploma in the um, International Exhibition, which was sometimes called the Dublin Exhibition, in 1907. Um, we were still part of the United Kingdom, and it was a, an exhibition, apparently, that was intended to improve the trade of Irish goods. So they actually won a commemorative diploma for their, their um, product in that. So they were kind of, they really were worldwide at that stage. And this is people waiting to board the train at Colbert Station in Limerick to go to the exhibition. And look at the style. <laughs> the ladies at the front. So that was 1907. 
So Jack died then in 1919 and Stephen Senior became the managing director of Elmara Limited and he stayed managing director until 1923. <coughs> Excuse me. So he apparently had great business acumen as well and he established a factory um, in Palmerstown, Ontario, Canada. And it was managed by his son Joe until the business was wound up in the 1940s. So it was um, set up, it, it was established in about 1903. And you can see here he's having a complimentary dinner given by Joseph O'Mara Palmerstown at the Queen's Hotel, 6th of June, to celebrate the opening of Palmerstown Pork Packing House. So that was in Ontario. Um, and everywhere they, any factory they kind of established or took over or whatever, a member of the family would be sent out to kind of to run it so they really spread across and the the one in russia apparently there was two the the guy that was running that wasn't happy with the way things were being done so he actually requested that two of the butchers from omaras in limerick would go out to russia so they spent a bit of time in russia kind of training training the the butchers in that so where are we now um, yep, yeah. so Stephen and Ellen's third son, Stephen Jr., he was born on the 5th of January, 1884. And he entered the family business when he traveled to Canada to work in the bacon factory established by his father. So it was Joe was running it, but he actually went out to work in it as well. In 1923, when his father stepped down, he became the managing director of Amara Limited. And he created huge employment opportunities across the country. He established two factories, one in uh, Clare Morris in County Mayo and another one in Letterkenny in County Donegal in the 1930s. And they all came in under the O'Mara, the O'Mara name. And you can see there that was 1936. James O'Mara carried on 1899 to 26 by the, by the, the late maybe Stephen O'Mara still going strong under the direction of children and grandchildren. So that was some exhibition that was in 1939. So Stephen married Nancy O'Brien in 1918, and she was the writer of, or she was the sister of the famous writer Kate O'Brien, who was born on Baru House on Mulgrave Street in Limerick. And she said that one of Kate's books, which the number, the name is gone from my head. She wrote about this, this well-to-do family, and it was supposed to be based on the O'Maras and Strand House. So um, when, when Stephen and Nancy first married, they were living in a house called Tumivara, and that was said to be after where his father had come from, was remembering that. They had no children, but they adopted a son called Peter in 1925 in London. And apparently Stephen wasn't even there when this happened. The wife had gone over to visit some family. Um, they had it in their head that they would adopt a child, and she walked into an orphanage, and this little boy ran over to her, and she came home with him, apparently. So... Lucky boy. So again, Stephen Jr. was, um, had politics running in the blood. He was appointed member of Sinn Féin Standing Committee in the December 1918 general election. He was a member of the Limerick Corporation when the Irish War of Independence broke out. And when the mayor of Limerick, George Clancy, was killed by the Black and Tans on the 7th of March, 1921, O'Mara was elected in his place on 22nd of March. And his brother Fons had been a uh, previous mayor, Alphonsus or Fons. In May, he went to the United States to replace his brother James as fiscal agent. So they were out there raising funds for, um, Doyle funds for the Irish Republic at that stage. 
He was re-elected mayor in January 1922, and he was opposed to the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So de Valera was at Strand House with the O'Maras on the night the treaty was signed in London. On 5th of December 1921, de Valera, Dick Mulcahy and Cahill Brewer were down in Limerick reviewing troops of volunteers while treaty negotiations reached a climax in London. So Dev received freedom of the city. Um, the younger Stephen O'Mara was mayor of Limerick at this time, so that was probably quite nicely done over a couple of drinks. Um, de Valera, Mulcahy and Brewer stayed the night of 5th into 6th of December with old Stephen O'Mara, or Stephen O'Mara Sr. in Strand House. Early in the morning, a phone call came through that the with the news that the treaty had been signed in London. Old Stephen O'Mara walked them to Cor uh, nearby um, Colbert Station and saw them on the train and, and let them off. So that is a picture of uh, Michael Wren, aide-de-camp to Dick Mulcahy. So one of um, James O'Mara's daughters actually married Rin. And, and you'll see that at the end, that there's a connection with the Rins, who I think were primarily from Ennis direction. Um, so you have Dick Mulcahy and then Mary O'Mara, Eamon de Valera, obviously Stephen O'Mara Sr. and Cahill Brewer, right outside the front door of Strand House. Okay, so Stephen Sr. Jr. was chairman of O'Mara's Baking Company at the time of the centenary in 1939. And I just saw that they had um, a big celebration in the Savoy restaurant in Limerick on the 11th of February. Um, the dinner included port from 1889 and cognac from 1839. But I love this li little poem. The English beef, the Welshman sheep, the Scotsman haggis gnaws, the Eskimo holes, walrus fat between his greasy paws. The Frenchman nibbles froggy's legs, New Yorkers gobble clams, but Irish men who, knows, who know what's what stick to O'Mara's hems. This is brilliant. <laughs> that was written especially for that. Um, I was laughing, re reading that out this evening, thinking how many of those statements would you get in serious trouble for today? <laughs> yeah, the greasy paws and the Frenchman nibbles froggy's legs. And, yeah, anyway. So yeah, they had big celebrations for that anyway. Um, so the three bacon factories then, which were the one in Limerick, the one in Clare Morris, and the one in Letterkenny, they were amalgamated in 1938 and formed into the Bacon Company of Ireland, but still kind of um, O'Mara's main name. Um, Stephen O'Mara Jr. remained the company's chairman until his death in 1959. And that's just, a, I know you can't really read it, but it's a snippet from the Limerick leader. Um, announcing the death of prominent Limerick citizen, Steve, the late Mr. O'Mara. Um, he was in his 75th year. So shortly afterwards, the old O'Mara factory in Limerick finally closed after 150 years. And in 1998 or 99, 1988, sorry, or 1989, the factory was demolished and the site was sold and became a car park, which you all probably recognize now. Um, and there's just a couple of photos there. Here's a photo of just before, shortly before it was knocked, and you can still see O'Mara and the 1839. And that's a colorized photo that I just found. It was from the early 70s of just some kids standing outside the factory. And there's the shop on 37 Rocha Street. So as well as the factory, they had their butcher shop on Rocha Street. Um, so that was taken from, uh, that's actually a postcard. Uh, Dublin, Sackville Street, 
General Post Office in Nelson's Pillar, and you can see most of the trams have the Omaras advertising on the front of them. So they really were big business at that stage. So uh, local connections, I suppose, this is one we found as well. They had a beautiful um, letterhead with the drawing and you know the, the crest and everything here. And this was actually for Mr. J. Crotty, Killaloo, Limerick, January 15th, 1930. He was buying onions, but I presume <laughs> there was pounds of ham, yeah, yeah. So, um, so obviously, you know, everyone was, everyone that bought from Crotty's was buying Omara's ham as well at that stage and eating it around here. And then this was another uh, photo that was given to me by Nellie Frawley and Anna Jennings. Uh, Ballya William men, they were delivering the pigs. So the Amaras lorry would come. This was outside the, the Yellow Bridge. Yeah, they'd come and they'd um, load the pigs onto it and then they'd head back into Limerick. Um, so really their business was stretching, not only worldwide, but like all over the country really. And this was um, a more modern photo of a truck in Limerick. Um, I don't know who your man is now, but <laughs> he doesn't look too happy. Benson Box supplied the car. Benson Box, yeah, to, to them and Mattersons and Denny, I think, or Shaw's or one of them, yeah, as well. Yeah, the Benson Box factory supplied the boxes or the packaging. So. This guy didn't have much to do with the factory, but I just included him because he was, again, into, into politics and a businessman. He was a key member of the Revolutionary First Doyle, one of the few politicians to have served both as a member in the House of Commons and in Doyle Aaron. And as an MP in the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, he introduced the bill that made St. Patrick's Day a national holiday in Ireland in 1903. So, fair play to him. <laughs> he didn't really have anything to do with the... the bacon business, but um, yeah, I just said I'd include him in, in that section. So that was kind of the, the bit, as I say, I could go on for another couple of weeks, but I'm sure you wouldn't want to listen to it, but just about, like they were so influential and, you know, they, they even brought it, broke into Romania and were transporting bacon from Romania and then it was stopped by Germany and, you know, there's all these stories about them, but I'm, as I say, I'm, I just kind of handpicked some of the ones that I thought were quite good. So this was another one that came up that I had never known anything about, and his name is Joseph. And he was an Irish opera singer of the Victorian and Edwardian, Edwardian eras, educated at Crescent College, and as a boy he sang as a choirster in St. John's Cathedral and St. Michael's Church in Limerick. And he actually became quite famous. So he went and studied in Milan under Signor Moretti for two years, and in 1891 he made his London stage debut when he landed the title role in the original production of the opera Ivanhoe by Arthur Sullivan, of Gilbert and Sullivan, at the newly built Royal English Opera House in London. And that's a sketch of it for roughly around that time. So I mean, to make his, his stage debut and the title role and in somewhere like that was, was quite impressive from a boy from Limerick. Um, so from 1893 to 1894, he toured Britain and Ireland with Sir Augustus Harris's Italian Opera Company, and he was singing all the principal tenor roles. In 1894, he first appeared at Covent Garden Theatre. Uh, no, you can go back again, sorry for a second. Um, and for three years, he was the principal tenor at Theatre Royal Drury Lane. 
1896, he actually created his own tenor role. Um, tenor lead, sorry, Mike Murphy and Charles Villiers Stanford's opera, Seamus O'Brien, with Henry Wood conducting. And after a tour of Britain and Ireland in Seamus O'Brien, the Harris Company brought the opera to America in 1897, where he and his new wife, the former Miss Power, um, they, O'Mara enjoyed great personal success over there. Throughout the rest of the career, Mike Murphy would remain one of his signature roles. Okay. So he and his wife returned to London, even though things were good in America, they did come back to London for a series of concerts. Um, but in the autumn of 1897, they went back to America where he created the tenor lead in Reginald de Coven's The Highwayman. Um, he gave a number of private concerts at the beginning of the new century, but returned to opera as leading tenor with the Moody Manors Opera Company in London from 1902 to 1908. Performing in, now you'll have to forgive my pronunciations, Maritana, Cavalleria, Faust, Langren, Pagliacchi, Il Trovatore, Carmen, Charles Gounad's Romeo and Juliet, and the first English language production of Puccini's Madame Butterfly in 1907. He also performed extensively in Ireland as well. He was granted freedom of the city of Limerick in 1908, the only time that a singer achieved this honor. So in 1909, he returned to Britain and joined the Thomas Beecham Company, singing in Carmen, Faust, and Tales of Hoffman, among others, over the next few years. And he also continued in you know, smaller concerts as well. In 1912, he founded O'Mara's Travelling Opera Company, in which he was the principal tenor until 1926. Um, in 1913, he opened their Dublin season, and at the Theatre Royal Leeds, his company performed Puccini's La Boheme and Madame Butterfly in 1918 and Verdi's Rigoletto in 1921. And they also revived many Michael Balfe uh, works. So in all, O'Mara sang 67 different tenor roles. Um, in 1926, he was the first tenor to broadcast in Ireland at the opening of the new Irish radio station Radio, radio 2 RN, now RTE. Um, he died in Dublin at the age of 63 and is buried in Dublin. We have, now not great quality, so hopefully it will work, but I have two snippets of him singing. One in um, 1898, I think, and the other in 1901. So we'll just see, did they work? And that's him in costume and in full flight, obviously.
<laughs> the other one is a bit more um, ear friendly. <laughs> gramophone or something in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the um, the famous Joseph O'Mara. Um, like it's it doesn't sound too pleasant <laughs> to be honest, but it's it's fantastic to have those. I mean, as I said, the 1901 and 18, 1898 or 1899 or something um, recorded live, and you can hear the piano in the background and everything. So it's it's fantastic. Like he was uh, James O'Mara who set up the factory first. He was his son. Now, so we move on to James Junior. Um, and we mentioned him already, James or Jim. He moved to London in 1886 to work as an agent for O'Mara's in the UK. And they had set up the Russian bacon factory in 1891, importing the, the bacon from Russia to London. He died in 1893, um, and he was only in his 30s. And he left behind his widow, Mysie McKenna, and two young daughters, Constance or Connie and Honora, who was known as Daisy. So five years later, Mysie died leaving the girls orphaned. Connie was only six at the time, and I don't know what age Daisy was, but she was younger. So it appears the girls came to live with the O'Mara relatives in Ireland for a little while, or in Limerick, um, but they also went on then and went to boarding school. So this was the first story that I came across for the O'Maras and piqued my interest, and then I, I kept going. So Constance, or Connie O'Mara, was born in London in 1891, so in 1913, when she finished school, she went to Vienna to work as a governess. And in 1914, she married Baron Werner von Trapp, becoming Baroness von Trapp. So her new husband was the brother of George Ritter von Trapp, the retired naval captain and the patriarch portrayed in The Sound of Music. The couple, they got married in 1913 and in 1914, they had a daughter who they also, also caused, called Constance. But in 1915, then, um, Werner was actually killed in action and leaving behind uh, Constance, I suppose, in a strange country with a child that wasn't even one yet. So she, straight away, she moved back to Limerick for a short period. Um, but the political turbulence and violence at home prompted her to return to Austria. And she moved in with her in-laws, the real von Trapps, in Gloucester, Nuremberg, in Austria. So um, this was... Yeah, this was, say, George Ritter van Trapp with his, his um, wife before she had passed away, before, before the nun came, basically. <laughs> so George Ritter van Trapp, he was born in 1880. His father was a Navy captain, and George followed in his footsteps. And in 1910, he married Agatha Whitehead. Their wedding was supposed to be a very high society event. And they went on to have seven children. So Rupert, Agatha, Maria, Werner, Hedwig, Johanna, and Martina. And Werner was named after his uncle, who had been killed, Constance's husband. And he is said to have been portrayed as Kirk in The Sound of Music. That's who he was. 
So when Connie moved in with the Van Trapp, she helped to look after the younger children in the family. Um, but the, their, their mother, Agatha, developed scarlet fever. And while she was quite ill, uh, Connie took over looking after the seven children. But she actually died in 1922. And Connie assumed the role of, of their mother. And there's records from some of the, the family um, of, of the O'Maras that say that they called her Tante Connie, which is kind of German or Austrian for, yeah, like a, a mothering figure or kind figure related. So they called her Tante Connie. So she basically took over the role of mother for them for a while. Um, so the children were later sent to boarding school then and um, their father wanted them to, I suppose, have an education, have more than just someone living with them. Um, and Connie and her daughter actually moved in with the children's maternal grandmother, who was also Agatha Whitehead. So, um, as I said, the children's, the children's grandmother, who had no link to her whatsoever, really, uh, took her in. And this is a picture of the three of them. So you have Agatha Whitehead, Constance O'Mara, and her daughter, Connie, um, in Austria. So as we know from the film, George Ritter married Maria Kutshira in 1927, and the family fled to the United States in 1938 when the Nazis arrived. But from the time, between the time they got married and the time they fled, they actually had three other children themselves, who were Rosemary, Eleonora, and Johannes. And Johannes is still alive. So Connie stayed in Austria, and in August 1941, she married Count Johann Herbert, of Herberstein Castle, and she became Countess Herberstein. And they lived in this castle in Austria, which is still open to visitors at the moment. And I think they have quite an impressive zoo there as well on the grounds and gardens and everything. So she's said to have visited Limerick many times, both as Baroness von Trapp and Countess Herberstein. She died on 24th of March, 1952, and was buried in the Herberstein Castle vault. So after Connie died, her daughter Connie is said to have visited Limerick on a number of occasions and stayed with her cousins in Strand House in Limerick. And she stayed at one stage while she was attending a lecture by the author Kate O'Brien, who would have been her cousin. Um, when she married, she kept the Von Trapp name as she was the only Von Trapp family member left in Austria. The rest had all gone to, um, to America. And I couldn't find any more about her, so I don't know if she's still alive or if she's passed on or if she, I presume she went on to have children because she did obviously marry. Um, so this is Etienne Rin placing flowers in memory of Connie. So his grandmother was Mary Neomara, who married uh, Michael Rin, and she was Connie's aunt. So he's there placing flowers at the vault in Herberstein Castle in, I think that was 2012. He was there shortly before he passed away. I have more music, but this is a bit better. <laughs> this is a memory of Agatha von Trapp, so the, one of the von Trapp children. Um, and she just has some pictures and stuff there, but this is actually them singing in the background, the seven children. Yeah. 
So that, you see, there was a house kind of appearing quite a bit mm. in that. When they moved to Vermont, or shortly after they moved to Vermont, they bought um, an old lodge and set it up kind of as a, a guest house. Uh -huh. And over the years, they, they extended it. So I don't know how many bedrooms it has now. It's, it's huge, but it's still, you can still go there. And it's run by Johannes's son um, still. So it's still in the Von Trapp name at this stage. Um, but they used to run singing camps and stuff, so you go for the weekend and sing and that kind of thing. Uh, so this one was just, it's a very short one, but it's just a funny one, of Julie Andrews meeting Maria von Trapp. Maria, there's something that I've always wanted to ask you. Now, you know, I played you in the picture and you are you and uh, I am me and since you are you and I was you and uh, since you're here and I'm here and I was you. Um, Sorry. And I, I want to know, how was I? How was you? Yes. As you. Yes, I mean, even after the fact, it's better to learn how to yodel properly, right? <laughs> <laughs> you do it fine. 
I presume some of you have watched The Sound of Music, so I don't know whether to burst your bubble now or will I just leave it at that. <laughs> Apparently there was huge differences. Um, the, Maria came as, she was training to be a nun and she was sent as not a governess but as a, a teacher for some of the children. Um, she fell in love with the children and the father saw that he, they needed a mother, so it was more a marriage of convenience, apparently. Yeah, it wasn't the big love story. Um, she was the one that set up the, the Von Trapp family singers, um, and she was very involved, apparently, in the filming of the series, uh, or the, of the, the film. And she would say, well, I want it like this. And if they said, no, no, we're doing it like this, she'd push her hands in front of the children and say, you do it my way or you don't get the children. <laughs> Apparently she was a, a dinger <laughs> and she's a, she, she appears in the film but you can't really see her, she's her hood up but um, when Maria is first leaving the, the convent and she's singing I have confidence in sunshine, she actually walks in along the back. Um, but yeah, it was a, a slightly different life to the, <laughs> the one that was portrayed but she did go back um, when she realized maybe that it was coming to a wedding, she did go back to the mother superior and seek advice and everything and then went back and, and married him. And they did go on and have three more children and stayed together until, until she died, or until he died. He died in the 1950s, I think, Jorg. So, um, yeah, so from me finding a little bit about Constance von Trapp and my love of the sound of music, <laughs> which myself and my sister used to watch it, we knew every word of it. Um, but yeah, that's when I started digging then, that's kind of the, the O'Mara history I found. So very interesting, interesting family. So thanks a million. Have we any questions for Arlene on that very entertaining story? <laughs> they were some influential family, weren't they? They were, yeah. yeah. No. Um, when Connie, o Connie O'Mara married the Baron of Yes. Um, my grandfather was married to Nori O'Mara, Stephen's daughter. Oh, no. And they sent a wedding present over to Connie and uh, Baron. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well. died, was killed in battle in 1915. Yeah. It was customary then that the wedding present was sent back. And Ooh. this happened at weddings if you were recently married. And yeah. Well, I have it for my grandfather. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Connie brought it back to my grandfather and, Mar and my grandmother, who was Nori O'Mara, who Nari. was okay. Stephen's daughter. And Stephen went to the funeral. born in 1886. Okay. Yeah, Stephen did go over to the funeral, didn't yes, he? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. My mother at the wedding. Yeah. Look at this, isn't it just what's your name? My name is Mary Shields, but my mother's name was Isn't that unbelievable? My grandmother. Did you know No. We'll have to get photos of of you before you leave now this evening with that. Yeah, do please, yeah. Uh, Stephen O'Mara, as you said, was a great friend of uh, Parnell. Yes. And uh, Parnell's uh, grandfather was the admiral of the ship, the Constitution, which fought in the American War of Independence in 1776. 
And Stephen was such a friend that he was at his, at his deathbed in, in, Brighton. in Brighton. Okay. And Stuart Parnell gave him the cane. Oh, wow. Now, this is a piece of the constitution, the ship. Wow. And, uh, this was engraved, and you can read it here, uh, oh about God. his uh, Stuart's grandfather. Wow, that's amazing. Oh my God, the ship was the ship was commanded, commanded. by Admiral Stuart, grandfather of Charles Stuart Parnell. Wow. wow. This cane is a portion of the American ship Constitution, which fought for independence. In 1776. Oh my God! Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing that out. If people want to come up and have a look at that, thank you. See the weight of it. It's unbelievable. That's fabulous. Yeah, the weight of it. It's really heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish. <laughs> so we're saying the next generation, so probably a nephew of Stephen, also called Stephen, lived with his wife in Corbally, was it? Yeah, in Shannon Drive. Shannon Drive in Corbally in the 1950s. Tony's nodding there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, was a, he would have been a nephew of Stephen's then, would he? <coughs> Stephen's side of the family lived in Awesome House, which is a big building in yes and billiards and stuff yeah oh yeah 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 joseph well if he was singing like that i don't know if you'd go down to see him but <laughs> Yeah, because there is a plaque on that house to say that he had lived there for a while. So before he went to Milan, he, and obviously when he was coming over and back, he, he lived in that house in Hearthstone Street um, and sang off the veranda, which is amazing. Yeah. You tell us the secret of your searching success. How did you find this calling? <laughs> I don't actually know how I came across that. I think it was literally just Google. There's, um, I'll just put up the, sorry, the, so, as I said, the A to Z of Curious, his curious History, that's how I came across it at the start. There was a lady, she had written, Clodagh Finn, the Limerick woman who married the real Van Trapp, Van Trapp singing family. So that's how it all started. And then there's a Humphreys genealogy site. His name is Mark Humphreys, and he has done a massive amount of genealogy on a load of Limerick families. And the O'Maras, he has one. And I'm wondering, was it a link through that? He, he gives the information, and he has all these live links so you could just go down a rabbit hole like for hours. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere along, I found that on Google actually, so somewhere along that, and it could be his site. I start, yeah, when I start, I kind of just get a bit, yeah, yeah. So. Do you know that Humphreys man? I don't think he lives in Limerick. Mark Humphreys, his name is, but he has done just, yeah, he has just done, and that's, he has all, that's where I got a lot of the photos and he has all the family there and you just click on the different streets, the different names and it brings you to all the history. And did I hear you mention in Sullivan? Yeah, Marcus Sullivan, yeah. 
managed the Limerick factory in the late 30s. Yeah. Well, his website, Mary. He was my uncle. Yeah. Was your uncle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sees all the different streets that they were Mungard Street, Rocha Street, the logos, Donnelly's. They took over Donnelly's as well in Dublin, even though they never changed the name of it. They, they ran it for a number of years, but it was still Donnelly's, even though it was owned by O'Mara's. Um, and that's where I got the poem, The English Beef, The Welshman. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a fantastic site. So if you just type in O'Mara's Bacon Factory Limerick and Humphrey, go to Humphrey's Genealogy, you'll find a load of stuff there for anyone interested. James O'Mara was born in Tumivara in 1817. There is actually um, links to his family that had stayed there. Uh, th there was a headstone I saw the other day. Now, I don't know exactly where, what church it was in, or, but it was Tumivara related anyway. Um, so I'm not quite sure where he came, but he, he followed his brother to Limerick. Well, that's what it looks like in eight, about 1837, 1838. The name Tumivara, Yes, yeah, yeah. So Amara would be a huge name out there, wouldn't it? And he was the one that changed it from M-E-A-R-A to M-A-R-A because he thought, he thought um, M-E-A-R-A for business purposes was too long. So he dropped the E. Yeah, so that's how he, yeah, so he was M-E-A-R-A. Great fun when you're searching on the genealogy websites for him. <laughs> down to the last to the wire on this now. Arlene is 25 here yeah. and I have another 25 at home. So we've sold 450 of them, which is great. 
But we're selling this for 10 euros tonight, if anyone doesn't have a copy, I'd say a lot of you do. And then we have two of our journals, issue one is out of print now, but we have issue two and issue three, and they're 15 euros each in the shops, they're 20. So if anyone doesn't have one, but I have a feeling looking at all the faces, yeah. they're all, you've already bought them, so, but we thought we'd bring them along. And we'll tell you about our next talk, which is in April. I'm sorry the 19th of April, and it's a really special talk in that we have someone coming from Australia to give this talk. This man, Phil Gleeson, contacted us last October, wondering, saying that his great-great-grandfather had emigrated from Killaloo in the late 1800s, the 1887 or 88, I think, and he was married to, his mother was a Bridget Hayes, and his father was a John Gleeson, but that, that was wrong, actually. The grandmother was a Margaret Hayes, and they were from, we, like, how do you find a John Glee, uh, a Thomas Gleeson and his family here with very little information? But Phil told us that they named the farm in Tainyong in Australia, in Victoria, Killari. So that focuses on Tantina. And the Margaret, this man's mother, was Margaret Hayes from Killari Hayes up in Tantina. So that townland. So we're able to zoom right in, find the family, and Phil in his initial email in October had said, we're well, just wondering if I any living relatives in the area. He has tons of them. <laughs> so he's coming over. He has so many. We're having a family reunion. It's actually thrilling. So he's coming over. He's staying in the lakeside for three nights. He's bringing his partner, Mary Ellen, and his son, Thomas Gleeson. And the, there are Thomas Gleesons everywhere in Killaloo. So he's staying here for three nights. He's giving the talk not so much on the genealogy of the Gleasons of Killari, but on his feelings as a third generation Australian, the feeling of being still being Irish, and, and what this research has opened up to him, and the, the kind of the emotions, and, the, and he's also going to tell us about this man, his great-great-grandfather, Thomas Francis Gleeson, who was educated in the model school in Derry Castle, and who attributed, in an interview with the newspaper in Victoria, attributed his success in potato farming to what he learned in Derry Castles. And then in May then, we're moving our talks to the cathedral, St. Lannes Cathedral, and we have a really good speaker lined up, uh, Luke McInerney, who is a medieval, he's a banker by day, he's Australian also actually, but he lives in Ireland, he's a banker by day, and he's a kind of medieval scholar the rest of the time, and he really, I, I saying he's like the Brian Cox of medieval history, so he's kind of a rock star of history in that he's young, he's vibrant, you know, he's not a fuddy-duddy old professor or anything. So he's going to give a talk on the early Irish church in the cathedral, which is very athletic. So that's for our talk for May. And then in June, we're still working, we're firming up June, July, August, September. And for providing the super venue for us, mm. you know, really free of charge, free of charge, put the heat on for us, even, yeah. you know, so it's really nice of them, and, and we're grateful to the cathedral in that we can move there during the summer, where we don't have to use the heat, <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice. 